Heavenly Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that we trust you. We believe in you. We have faith in you. And we trust your commands. That is why we're looking at your scriptures this morning, is because we trust that your word is true, that it proceeds from the very mouth of God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us knowledge and wisdom and good judgment here this morning as we look at your word together. We know that those things are found in your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant them to us as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we continue our series in John's Gospel, and particularly John chapter 10. We've been working through this chapter together, and we've seen that Jesus is giving this metaphor as to his relationship with his church. He continues to call himself a good shepherd, that he is a shepherd, and his people are like sheep. And last week we saw that he is a shepherd in the way that he protects his sheep from predators, and particularly the, uh, the illustration that's given in the passage before us is of wolves, wolves that like to eat the sheep, uh, come along, and the shepherd protects his sheep by getting in the way of that danger. And so last week we saw that he lays down his life for the sheep. He is consumed by the wolf of judgment, of death and hell that is coming for the sheep because of their sin. But Jesus gets in the way of that wolf and completely satisfies that wolf so that eternal life is granted to his people. But the question may remain as to why would Jesus do that? Why would he care about the sheep? Why would he lay down his life for the sheep? Is he forced into this situation where he has to give his life for the sheep? And the answer is given to us in the text today in verses 17 and 18. They're the two verses in particular that we'll be concentrating on today. And we see that Jesus gives his life, he lays down his life, because he is simply willing to do so. He is not forced to lay down his life, he is willing to do so. And we see that in verse 17. The reason my father loves me, verse 17 of John 10, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Why does Jesus give his life? It's out of his own accord. It is simply because he is willing to do so and because God the Father is willing for him to do so. We see that God the Father is mentioned there in those verses as well, that this is a command that he has received from the Father and so the Father is willing that Jesus would lay down his life for his sheep and Jesus himself is not forced into the situation by any wolf or even by God the Father. He is willing himself to lay down his life for the sheep. Some people like to characterize uh, the actions of Jesus at the cross as they call it cosmic child abuse, that God the Father forced his son to take, to give up his life for his people. But it wasn't forced upon Jesus. Jesus did it of his own accord. He was willing to do so. And we see that this is the case as we read the scriptures. At first, in a superficial reading of the Gospels about the life of Jesus, you might think that when he died, it was all a big mistake and it wasn't part of his plan and other people are to blame for his life. Other people are the reason that he he died. You might think that it was Judas 
that is to blame for Jesus dying. You might think that it is the Jewish leaders for having a problem with Jesus and then, of course, having those trials and taking him to Pilate. You might blame Pilate, this weak Roman governor. He is responsible for Jesus dying. Or the Roman soldiers. They're the ones that actually drove the nails into his hands. They're the ones that hung him up on the cross. They are the ones that are responsible for Jesus' death. But we see again and again, if we carefully read the scriptures and carefully read these accounts that are given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, if we carefully read them, we see that Jesus is in complete control of his death, that he willingly lays his life down. How do we see that as we uh, consider the Gospels? Well, firstly, we see that he often escapes those who want to kill him. He often escapes them. We've seen that as we've been studying the, the, Gospels, uh, the Gospel of John together. If you look back with me at John chapter 8, verse 59, it was a while since we looked at that together. John chapter 8, verse 59, the Jews are incensed at what Jesus says about the fact that he is the I am, that he is claiming to be God. And so what do they do? And verse 59 At this they picked up stones to stone him. They want to kill him right there and there. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Jesus can escape when he wants to. If people want to kill him, he can get away. And even if you turn back over to John chapter 10, we haven't got there yet, but John 10 verse 39, we read, Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. When people want to kill Jesus, he's perfectly capable of escaping. We don't know the details of how he exactly did it, whether he ran or whether he just walked right through them, as it says in one account when he was going to be put to death in his hometown of Nazareth. They were going to throw him off a cliff, but he walked right through them. But he clearly has control over when he lays his life down. And then at his arrest, if you turn with me to John chapter 18, It is clearly not the Jewish leaders and the soldiers that they've brought that are in control when he is arrested. Look with me at John chapter 18, verse 1. John chapter 18, verse 1. Jesus has been praying the great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And then we read in verse 1 of John 18, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he. Jesus said, and Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, this is obviously a perplexing uh, verse, what happens there in verse 6, but uh, he is declaring there literally in the, the Greek, I am, which may be a proclamation that he is God once again, and they are falling over. Uh, and the proclamation that he is God, that they are in the presence of God, and they are forced to bow before him. Or it may be, some people suggest, that he just goes out so boldly, they weren't expecting, they were expecting to hunt this guy down. That's why they got Judas to tell them where he was. 
And he's, he's just come out so fast that there's, a, and there's such a big group of them that the guys in front stop and then everybody else falls over, uh, because they're all backed up. But clearly what the point is that I'm trying to make here this morning is Jesus is in control here. Those trying to arrest Jesus are not in control ultimately. They have come for him. He goes willingly out to them. They ask, and, and he's doing the questioning. Who do you want? He's asking the questions. They say Jesus of Nazareth. He puts himself forward. And so they all fall over. And then verse 7, again he asks them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. He's like, okay, you want me? Get me. I've told you I'm he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. Clearly, happy to be arrested at this stage. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, here we have one of his disciples who clearly doesn't want Jesus to be arrested, and this would be the opportunity for Jesus to make a bit of an escape. What does he do? Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He's actually telling his disciples to put the weapons away. I'm willing to be arrested here. And he actually says in Matthew's account of his arrest that he could call 12 legions of angels. He could call upon God the Father to send 12 legions of angels to prevent his arrest if he wanted to. He is clearly willing to give his life up as we look at his arrest. And then when he is before Pilate, and you think, oh, yes, Pilate's the one that's responsible for Jesus uh, being arrested and then dying uh, for his death, we read that Jesus is the one who says that he has authority over his life. Look with me at verse 10 of John 19. Go over the page, John 19, verse 10, and Pilate is speaking to Jesus, and Jesus is not giving him an answer. And then he says in verse 10, this is Pilate speaking, Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Now that word power there is the same Greek word that is used back in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I have authority. That same word authority is here. So you could translate verse 10 there. Do you, don't you realize I have authority either to free you or to crucify you? So we think, okay, who's got the authority over Jesus's life? It's Pilate. Pilate believes he does. What does Jesus say in verse 11? Jesus answered, You would have no power, same Greek word, no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And then we see in verse 12, From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. He's actually trying to get Jesus off. But Jesus continues to walk steadily towards his own death. And even when Jesus dies, he's up there on the cross. Does he die of his own accord or is it forced upon him? What do we read in verse, uh, verse 30 of John chapter 19? Same chapter, but verse 30. When he'd received the drink, he's been offered a drink on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Even that point of death, yes, there's this long process of him getting arrested and going through the trials and then actually the crucifixion, but the point of him dying itself is all on Jesus' terms. He gives up his spirit, and Pilate's even surprised. 
that he's dead already. He was meant to take a lot longer to die in crucifixion. But instead, he has given up his life of his own accord. He has authority to lay down his life. It is clear when you carefully read the scriptures that the words that are given to us in John chapter 10, which we're studying today in verse 17 and 18, that he has authority to lay down his life. But he doesn't just have authority to lay down his life. We read in John 10 as well that he has another authority, and that is the authority to take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it, that's my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. He dies and then he has the authority to take up his life again. And this is because he is willing to do that as well. Why did Jesus die? Because he was willing to die. Why did Jesus come to life? Because he was willing to to come to life. He was willing that he would come back to life and his father was willing that he would come back to life and gave him that authority. Jesus didn't need anyone to kill him and he didn't need anyone to raise him to life. Jesus is the one who chooses when he dies And when he comes to life, he said earlier in John's gospel to the Jews, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. I will raise it again in three days. He is the one who has authority over his death and his life. Now, how do people react to this news? Well, some people claim that he's demon-possessed and raving mad as a result because it is a remarkable thing that Jesus says. And we see that in verse 19 and 20. Verse 19 of John chapter 10, At these words the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? You can't raise yourself. Everybody knows that. Once you die, you die. Even if you have the ability to do CPR or defibrillate someone so that their heart starts beating again, you can't do it to yourself. You can do it to somebody else if you're still alive, but once you're dead, you can't do it. And so Jesus is saying here, I can do it to myself. And that's an extraordinary claim. To try and bring someone else back to death and to life, it's kind of hard. To bring yourself back to death and to life after death, it's impossible unless you're God. And that's what Jesus is. He is God. And people start to realise this. As they listen to his words, they then start to consider, okay, so this guy's claiming to be something far greater than we ever anticipated. And how do we know this? Well, we see in verse 21 that some people are twigging to the fact that Jesus may have authority to take up his life again. Verse 21, But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon, Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Jesus' miracles, and the particular miracle that we've examined so carefully in John chapter 9, of opening a man's eyes who was born blind, these miracles point to the fact that Jesus' words may add up after all, that he may be able to take up his life again. If he can do these great miracles of opening a man's eyes who was born blind, then maybe he can raise himself after all. And the thing is, we live on the side of another greater miracle that these Jews hadn't witnessed at this stage. And what is that? 
Well, it's when he did what he claimed he could do. He did raise himself to life. He did come back to life. He did die of his own accord, and then he came to life of his own accord. We see in the pages of Scripture that there were people who witnessed the fact that he did come back to life. He laid down his life of his own accord, but then in John chapter 20, we see that he certainly did come back to life. Now, why is this important? Why is it important to recognize that Jesus laid down his life of his own accord and came back to life of his own accord? Well, Jesus' death and his resurrection are of great importance because of what he said they would do. Jesus having power over his own life and death is of great importance because of what he said he would do by his death and his resurrection. Jesus taught that he would die and rise for the sins of his people. He would die and rise for the sins of those who trust in him. We read that in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, where uh, the Apostle Paul says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. So if Jesus' death was beyond his control then the actions of his death may also be beyond his control. But if Jesus desired to die on his own terms, and he did so, then what he desired to die for means that he's done what he claimed he would do. If his life was taken from him without his will, then he may not have been able to do what he claimed he would do by his death. But if he has died on his own terms in the situation that he wanted to and he has been raised according to his terms by his will, then he has indeed died for our sins and been raised for our justification. He has done as he desired. If he has done it by his own will, then the actions that he has said will happen by his death, namely the punishment of our sins is poured out upon him, then we can have life in him. And so we can understand that Jesus doesn't just have authority over his death and authority over his life. We can understand that by his death and resurrection, he has authority over our lives. He has authority over our death and he has authority over our resurrection as well because of what happened by his death and resurrection. And that's what's told to us in John chapter 5, verse 21. We looked at it probably years ago now. We've been in John's gospel, going there and coming back. But John chapter 5, verse 21, flip with me back just a couple of pages. John 5, verse 21. Verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. We've always got to be careful about not splitting the Trinity up uh, in terms of his resurrection and death, and I may have given you that impression this morning, but you can see that the Father in John 10 is involved in Jesus laying down his life and taking it up again. And here we see that again in verse 21, that they're both involved, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. The Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Why can he do that? Because of his death and resurrection. He has authority over his death and resurrection and he has authority over our death and resurrection as well. 
Now, we may wish that we had power over death and life. We would love to be able to bring other people back from the dead and to bring ourselves back from the dead as well. Jill and I did a CPR course recently, and we learned, once again, we've done it in the past uh, uh, for medical training, but it's been a few years and it's expired, and so we did it again, and you go there and you get the dummies out and you lay them out and you have to count. Um, they've got this new way of doing it, so you get the beat right. You, you, um, you press every time to the song Staying Alive. Staying alive, staying alive, uh, uh. And it fits really well with the idea of staying alive. You want the person to stay alive. And so you have that tune going in your head, and that beat of that song helps you to know when to press down on the person's sternum so that you keep the heart going. And this is a wonderful thing to be able to do, to give life back to someone. And it'd be lovely if you could do it more and you could do it to yourself. And doctors and nurses would do this on a regular basis, not just with compressions, but in other ways. They give life back to people. And it's wonderful to have power, to have authority over life and death. But even these occurrences where people bring someone back to life, they're merely resuscitations, not resurrections. They're just resuscitations. What do I mean by that? Well, eventually people do give up with the resuscitations that they're trying to effect. No one keeps on doing CPR on someone in the morgue. No one does CPR on someone at a funeral service. And there's no one going around in the graveyards doing CPR there. No one getting out the defibrillators in a graveyard. And if you do bring someone back to life by CPR, by applying those paddles, saying clear, and the person starts to have a heartbeat again, what will eventually happen to that person? That heart will stop again one day. And it may be that they're resuscitated again, but it will stop again one day. It will eventually stop, and it won't start again. We may think that we have authority over life and death, but we don't have authority over life and death as the way that the Lord Jesus does. He can raise someone to life even if they've been dead for millennia. He can raise them to life. And he is the only one who can. He's the only great physician who can give someone eternal life because he alone is the one who has authority over life and death. Now just consider, if you knew you had a terminal illness, if you found out from the doctor tomorrow that you have a serious terminal illness and you're going to die in the next few weeks, but there is one doctor in another part of the world who has the cure for that illness, what would you do? He's the only one who has effected a cure for it. What would you do? Wouldn't you try and... Look at whether you could go and see that doctor and ask him to cure you from that illness that you have. Wouldn't you be willing to put yourself into his hands to trust him that he will give you that life that you crave? Particularly if the doctor has a good track record of healing people from that particular illness. What do I mean by a good track record? Well, it's actually known that this doctor had the exact same condition you have. And what did he do? He cured himself. He had what you have, and he cured himself. 
Now, wouldn't you go and see that doctor? That's what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a terminal illness, but there is a great medical doctor who does give life, and not just life that will last for maybe another decade or so, but eternal life. Maybe you think that you don't have to worry, that you don't have a terminal illness this morning and that this is all irrelevant to you. Well, I've got bad news for you, but I suspect you already know it. Everybody has a terminal illness in this room. We all have a terminal illness, and we all know it. There's little signs given to us, just like if someone has have heart disease of some sort. They notice there's a bit of a breathlessness, they know that there's a little bit of pain in the chest, a little bit of lightheadedness that's coming on lately, inability to do certain things that they used to have no trouble with, climbing certain sets of stairs in their own home. Something wrong. There's little signs there. And that's the case for all of us. There's little symptoms around us that indicate, yes, you've got a terminal illness. The way your body is decaying, the way things aren't the way in your body that they used to be. Your hair stops growing in certain places. Your skin starts sagging and certain health issues come up that don't really go away and they continue to be there. Your body is in a state of decay and it gets more and more apparent the older you get. Your mind doesn't function the way it used to. Someone asked me for my phone number this week and I started to write it down and then I had to hang on. I had to think about it again. Now, that's never happened to me before except when I got my phone number about 20 years ago. Is that a little indication that the mind's starting to go or was I too busy thinking about something else? I'd like to think I was too busy thinking about something else, but it's not that my, my mind is starting to decay. But it may be a little sign that there's a terminal illness at work within my body and I'm not going to live forever. And the way that everybody around you seems to drop off eventually is a little warning sign that you're not going to live forever either. Think of all the people that you've known in your life and are no longer with you. They're all little reminders, you're not going to live forever. And so if we're honest, we're all suspicious that one day we're going to die too. And so why won't we all go to Jesus for the eternal life that he gives? Are we going to keep on suppressing the truth that we have a problem, that we have a death problem, and we need Jesus to cure us from that death problem? Don't be like those Australians who like to say, she'll be right, mate, when we know she won't be. We have a death problem, and we need to go to that great physician. We need to go to Jesus Christ, stop the self-deception and ask him for the cure that he alone can give because Jesus is the kindest and gentlest and most welcoming of all medical doctors you have ever known. He has the best bedside manner. Some doctors have terrible bedside manners and you wonder how they stay in their positions. They must be really great surgeons or something so that the physicians, uh, the patients usually asleep um, while they're interacting with them. Jesus has the best bedside manner. And he doesn't charge exorbitant fees like some medical doctors. Imagine if you were a doctor and you had a cure for a terminal illness and you alone in the world had it. Oh, the monopoly. Imagine what you could charge people. 
Jesus is the only one who has authority over life and death, eternal life, and he doesn't charge exorbitant fees. So why wouldn't you go to him? Best bedside manner, most welcoming, not exorbitant fees, and when he, you give your life over into his hands, he gives you back a better life altogether. Jesus isn't like all those religious quacks out there that are claiming to be ones who can give you eternal life of other religions. There are many medical doctors out there, and I don't mean medical in terms of their... Uh, they've been through Harvard or Sydney Uni or something. I mean those who claim to be doctors of religion and they can tell you how to have eternal life. There's many religions out there with their doctors. They may be called gurus or something else, but they are quacks. How do I know they're quacks? That they're not real doctors? Because none of them have raised themselves to life. They all die too, whereas Jesus is the only one who shows that he's a true doctor of eternal life by the way that he has raised himself So why won't you go to him? Trust him to raise you from the dead one day. And so declare with Job in that passage that we read before, Job 19, one of my favourite passages in the Bible, that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. He'll be raised one day with a flesh body. You will see God. Now, if you've been to Christ for cure, what should you do this morning? Well, I would say you should bring others to the one who has authority over life and death. What did Andrew do when he first met Jesus back in John chapter 1, many years ago when we studied it? What do we read in John chapter 1, verse 41? The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. What did Andrew do? He got Simon Peter and brought him to Jesus when he knew that this is the Messiah, this is the one who gives life. When I worked as a podiatrist, a little while ago now, often people would bring other people for treatment from me. So you would have daughters who would bring in their elderly parents, often the daughters, parents, look after your daughters, they're the ones who often will look after you in older age, Have a special place for your daughters in your heart. These daughters would bring in their elderly parents for their toenails to be clipped and their corns to be taken off. And sometimes I would get to know the daughters and sons if they would bring them in as well, just as well as I'd know the patients as well. They'd become my friends. And sometimes you'd actually have the daughter come and get treatment from you first and then she'd sort of be checking you out and then she would bring her mum along for treatment as well. Jesus loves us to bring people to him for eternal life as well. He wants us to bring the terminally ill to him. Now, Jesus, the great physician, he can make house calls. He can, of his own accord, go to someone and bring them to himself, give them the cure from eternal life as he shows them his scriptures in some way. They have a copy of the Bible or something. But he loves his people who have been cured by him, who've already received the treatment, to bring terminally ill people to him as well. And it's hard work. Sometimes to get someone to see the doctor, particularly if it's a relative, you've got to convince them. They've got to go. And sometimes with your relatives, you've got to convince them. They've got to go and see Jesus Christ. You've got to keep at it. You really need to see the doctor. And sometimes you need to intercede on their behalf with the doctor himself. What people would do, they'd bring their 
parents in to get treatment from me and they would talk to me about what my parent needs and say, can you please help? Is there anything you can do for my mum? I know you helped me. Is there anything you can do for my mum's corns now? It sounds a bit corny, but uh, that is the life of a podiatrist. Um, I don't miss it all that much, I must say. But uh, they, they would come in and they would say, I had help from you. Can you now give help to my mum? And that's what we need to do with Jesus as well. You cured me. Is there anything you can do for my mum? Is there anything you can do for my dad? Is there anything you can do for my sister? Please help my sister. Please help my brother. Please help my uncle. Please help my friend. You can bring them to Jesus, but you can also intercede with Jesus for their sake. So who are you trying to bring to Jesus? You've already received eternal life. Wonderful. You've got the cure. Who's terminally ill around you and doesn't have the cure? Are you trying to get them to go to Jesus? Are you reminding them of the fact that they need to go to him? And who are you trying to intercede for them? Are you, who are you interceding for? Who could you come along to the prayer meeting this afternoon and intercede for with the great physician, Jesus, as well? Who is it that you know that's terminally ill, that you're making intercession to Jesus for, and that you're seeking to bring to Jesus so that they too can have life, eternal life. You know the one who has authority over life and death. Will you really keep him to yourself? Or will you take others to see him too? Let's speak with him now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you as the one who has control over life and death. You have control over your life. And you have control over ours by your death. At that cross, you paid for the sins of those who trust in you. And so you have power over us as well. Lord Jesus, we thank you for laying down your life and taking it up again for our sake. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to keep on trusting you for that eternal life. But Lord, we pray that we would not overlook the terminally ill around us. But we would take them to the one who has authority over life and death. You are the only one. And so, Lord, we pray that we would bring them to you. They would be willing to come. And, Lord, we pray that we'd make intercession on their behalf and that you, in your mercy, would grant them eternal life too. And we pray this in your name. Amen.